Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome. You're listening to Living Free on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, uh, highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, my name's Bill, and for the next hour, I'll be talking about alcoholism and family disease. I'd like to welcome Jason and Victor to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi, guys. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. As members of Alan Family Groups, they're going to share their experience of living with the effects of alcoholism and how Alan's helped them. I'll start with you, um, Jason. So I understand your mum was an alcoholic. And yeah, you, you grew true. up in an alcoholic home. So, what was what was it like? What what do you you know from I guess from your early recollections? What was what was your home life like? In the beginning, I thought um, there were some things that happened when I was really young, and I wondered. Um, it, it caused me a lot of confusion because um, I, I remember my dad being very angry with my mom once um, because. Um, well, what I later believed was because she was trained as a hairdresser and he didn't want her to be a hairdresser anymore. And I just remember this um, memory when I was in the in the bathroom with him and I was very scared. And um, with my mom, I didn't really know she was an alcoholic until I got into my 20s. And um, what I remember when I was young was that my uncle would come up from the city uh, on the weekends, he'd bring a slab of beer, and and my mom and my uncle, and some of my dad's friends, they'd be drinking, and that was just a normal part of my life. And with my mom, my mom wasn't um, what you would call sort of a typical binge drinking alcoholic. She was what you know I've come to know as a topper upper. So she was medicating with alcohol, and um, you know, this was something that I. I experienced and it was completely normal. However, yeah, yeah. So that that was how I experienced my mom. My mom was quite loving actually when I was young, and and um, you know, and I loved her very much. However, she wasn't all that present for me. You know, living in this disease, and um, there was there was um, things that I think I missed out in my childhood that I learned later that. Um, because she wasn't present for me, it, it it prevented me from having this proper social dynamics with people, and and understanding myself and and um, getting to know myself. So that's how I, I experienced my mom with her alcoholism. Right. And so, what about your dad? What was his behaviour like? That you know, how did that affect you? So it was my dad that I actually really noticed, um, because my dad. I always had the feeling that I I was sort of my dad was trying to control me all the time and I I I became I I came under the impression that I was somehow similar to my mom somehow and that because I was the eldest there was my sister and I I felt like that um I couldn't do anything right and that even from a, a young age that my dad was very physical with me he was violent with me sometimes and I didn't understand that you know, I was doing things that all kids do, and you know that 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 became very confusing for me because at a very young age, probably maybe four or five, 
um, my dad would beat me. And, um, and I used to always ask why. And so what happened was even when I had anger or any emotion that was an extreme emotion, I wasn't allowed to have those feelings. And that was um, how I experienced my dad. So, you know, my dad didn't know that my mom was an alcoholic, but I, I suspect now in recovery that he was highly affected by alcoholism and he would be someone who would qualify for Al-Anon. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what was your school life like? Um, actually, um, when I was in kindergarten, cause in Canada we have kindergarten, not prep. Um, they kept me out behind a year because at that time I was, I don't think I even said a word the whole year. So I was very suspicious of others. Um, cause I came from a very insulated family and, and all I knew, all my experience was, um, you know, being at home a lot with my mom or being with sometimes with friends, but a lot of it was around family and, and so um, it took me until about year four, grade what we call grade four in Canada, to realize, uh, you know, to actually start opening up. And um, I started to have really good friends. And um, at that time, I was a little a bit of a character. I liked acting and things like that. And that was kind of funny because um, I remember acting like an alcoholic at one time. <laughs> um, and that was before we had moved across Canada from the province of Ontario to British Columbia. And um, we moved there. My my grandfather was uh, had very severe asthma, and he moved there for the climate. Believe it or not, it has a warmer climate, yeah. <laughs> you know, where we lived in the interior of British Columbia. And um, so, um, you know, uh, uh, school actually school for me was was hard in the beginning, but I um, I was trying very hard all the time. I struggled a lot actually, right up to year four with comprehension and so on. And then by year five, I didn't like my teacher in year five, <laughs> but by year seven, I excelled at school, actually. Um, I did. I was a very all-rounder kind of thing with sport and, and academics, and I did very well. But then when I entered into junior high, things started to falter a little bit, and um, I sort of met some good friends, and we got in trouble. We started stealing things, and we weren't as honest, and... Um, and then when I was, but at the same time, at the same rate, I was also doing some very good things. Like I was in scouts and I had some really good role models. Um, but junior high and high school were very challenging for me. And when I got into high school, I had to change high schools about year nine. I became suspicious of everybody. <laughs> so that didn't make it very easy for me to, to be in high school and sort of become the outsider, you know, hang out with the people in the smoke pit and that kind of thing. And, and then I, you know, um, I, I started to have about, uh, signs of alcohol. I was drinking by an early age as well, around age 13 okay. in a small town. Yeah. So were your friends drinking as well? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Victor, um, what was your life like? Uh, what was your early life like and um, what was the family like? Um, <clears throat> it was grim, Bill. It was grim. Unfortunately, um, you know, there was uh, six kids. This was back, you know, uh, last century. And um, there were six kids and one was severely brain damaged, handicapped, called spastic in those days. There was one girl and five boys and my father, I never saw him sober or happy. And we lived in the same house. 
Um, yeah, it was violent. It was screaming and chaotic. And um, unfortunately, you know, the ch- children mirror their parents. And so the violence went down from the eldest brother and on and on it went down to the, you know, till it got to the cat and dog. Um, people fighting all the time and screaming. It was pretty horrible. People in the street, you know, I think thought it was pretty horrible as well. Um, and, you know, fortunately, outside of our house and in those days, there was a mountain and there was creeks and lots of bush. It was an escape. Um, yeah, it gave me a headache living in that place and nightmares, you know. Um <clears throat> It's awful when the uh, primary caregiver also preys upon, you know, his, you know, nest. And uh, as I said, there was one girl. Um, yeah, it was pretty horrific. No, um, no extra relatives, no aunties or uncles. Um, my parents, you know, did have them and we did occasionally visit some people, but we weren't as kids engaged with these other people, you know, it was all about my parents and, as you know, about the alcoholic and getting the alcoholic's needs met. Mm. Mm, okay. Um, so how did you, how did that make you feel, you know, in that situation? You know, were you, um, like Jason, were you distrustful of others? <laughs> um I uh, I think, you know, the thing that's kept me alive is that I've been ever hopeful, <laughs> you know. I believe in, you know, fantasy and fairy tales and, uh, you know, that there's got to be a better way. And uh, I remember from a young age fighting against the injustice of what was going on. And uh, I remember being good friends with my friend's parents and thinking, now these people know how to live you know, and um, so I would speak out against, you know, what they say, you know, as they say, the big pink elephant in the lounge room, the thing that everyone's stepping around, nobody mentions, you know, hey, why are you beating us? Why are you, you know, lining us up and uh, and interrogating us and all of this sort of stuff? I mean, the violence was, it was horrific. Um, uh, I think, yeah, so I was sort of more of, the hopeful type but nervous of meeting new people certainly and I remember at a young age primary school age becoming so self-conscious that if I talked to other people I would one of my eyes turned in and I would see my nose you know and so I was just like yeah stuck in this sort of um I think it was called cross-eyed in those days I don't know what's called now yeah (laughs) yeah so did you isolate did you try and keep yourself separate? Uh, from that family, I remember thinking I don't need any of them. But I, you know, have been fortunate enough to always have friends, um, which was good. And uh, as I said, you know, as kids, we went on these great adventures, you know, paddling five miles down a creek on our surfboards to get to the beach and under the <laughs> highway and or climbing over mountains. And uh, so I kept away from them. And in fact... I remember my mother saying to me once, why don't you come and watch the television with us? You know, you, 
you know, but I'd sit in my room reading books and with my headphones on listening to Black Sabbath, you know, and <laughs> um, but for them, you know, watching the television and having my father in the room was that if you breathed or you burped or farted or whatever, you know, it was like, so, you know, the tension was extreme. So I escaped, I guess, into this alternate reality of books and stuff. Right. <laughs> so what was it like at school? Was that an escape? Well, one would hope so, but uh, um, not really. I went uh, to a Catholic primary school and in those days, well, I remember being dragged around by the ear by one of the nuns, hit on the head with the school bell. Um, (laughs) I know my mother did the school canteen and she would bring my retarded brother in his wheelchair and they asked him, they asked her not to bring him because the other kids would see him. Um, so, you know, it was quite medieval in a lot of ways. Um, and I can't remember a lot of my childhood. Um, yeah, so, so it you, wasn't an escape yeah. as such. Yeah, It was I, still terror. Right. <laughs> Did you, could you do well? Could you concentrate at school with all that in your head? No, not really. And, uh, you know, as they say, you know, a child that's angry and anxious, you know, the alcoholic's weapons are to create anger and anxiety. And, uh, you know, if you know you've got to go home to somewhere that's not safe, it's hard to relax. You know, of course, I didn't feel safe. So, you know, it was hard to go off and explore, though. You know, somehow or other, as you know, children are incredibly, incredibly resilient. And I think... This is why, you know, uh, children have been ignored up until recent history, you know, because they always bounce back, you know. And uh, I still did some quite interesting things in primary school. Okay. Um, so, Jason, um, being being in things like scouts and stuff like that, was that, was that a, a release for you to get out of the house and into mix with people who are normal? Yeah. Scouts for me was, um, I had a really good friend, um, and his dad was incredibly involved with scouts. Um, and they were very community minded people. Um, and, um, he was sort of a a leader in the community. And, um, this was a big opportunity for me to actually sort of show what I could do. And so I became a leader in that. And, um, I went on and got my Queen Scouts. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, but I guess what it was was that it was something outside of the family that would provide, like you say, like an escape. But it was more, more than that. It was al- allowed me to actually to ha- have an identity outside of the family um, and, and with other boys in the bush. Um, you know, I became kind of bossy, <laughs> I must say. You know, probably taken on from my dad, and and uh, but at the same rate, I think it was a good opportunity for me to bond with other boys and and to be around some really good role models. And there was another leader, and he actually invited me to be um, to work on his uh, ranch. Actually, so he allowed me to use his horse, and I, I learned team roping. Actually, funny enough, and um, he took me to Oregon once, and because um, he was breeding horses, uh, quarter horses, actually. So, you know, this, so meeting him and, and then I worked with him on his ranch, um, was an incredible opportunity for me to 
experience something outside of the family that wasn't so, I guess, um, I feel sheltered, I think. And, and to know that was the only, you know, this is the only way I could kind of think. I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, I guess in retrospect now I realize that, you know, the, those people that I have in my life like that, um, they, they provided something that was helping me along rather than just survive. I think in, the, in those cases I was actually thriving in those circumstances. And uh, similarly, I remember a, a guy, there's always these things that helped me along in my life. He would just give me a bunch of stamps. And I love traveling and I love different countries. So um, that was another thing that provided me um, with something. I just started collecting stamps and, you know, learning about them, um, buying first day of issues and, and you know, learning uh, the scripts of different countries and what, you know, country they came from. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um so you mentioned that your dad moved around a bit. So was that a disruption to you, moving schools and uh, moving st- uh, states and houses? How, how did that affect you in your relationships with other people? Hmm. I remember um, having really good friends about up to year grade four, and, and that was really hard. Uh, I remember writing them letters once I moved right across the country and and. Uh, you know, and I try to keep that up, but that just ended up stopping. And what happened, I think, was I became disillusioned about um, the, the gr- groups of people, really. So I would just only have one good friend, you know, one or two really close friends, and because I was scared of losing someone. So it was like, the way I see it now is like I needed to hang on to someone, and I had to hang on to your life because I didn't know whether that was going to change or not. Um, I think the thing with moving too is that, you know, I don't know what it's like to have, you know, known someone right from, say, you're like one right up until like, say, now, which would be incredible for me. But I think there's a continuity, I think, that helps you to, to sort of cope in life and that it's something, you'll, you you know, like you, you want to keep up and I and so I remember even moving later on, and it, I, as an adult later on, I came to feel like, well, why would I even try to make friends? Because I know that's not going to last. But that may not even be grounded in reality. Yeah. But you know, that's what you grow up when you have to move quite a bit. Yeah. And um, but more than anything, I think growing up in that alcoholic home, that was where I was losing my social skills. You know, so moving was part of it, definitely, because it was. So for me, also moving was sort of like thinking that things are always going to get better. And I think that was sort of implied through living, like with my dad wanting to move that much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Podcasts of um, the Living Free Show are available on 3cr.org.au forward slash living free and also on iTunes. Um other shows, uh, 3CR shows, are available on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. If you've got a question or a comment about the show, you can call the station on 9419 8377 uh, or send us an email at 3 at oh, I'm talking to um, Jason and Victor about living with the family disease of alcoholism and how Alaron family groups can help. Um, so, Victor... You're in your early teens, so usually that's a time when relationships with the alcoholic get more and more difficult as we start to assert ourselves as children. So how did that work in your family? 
Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> I was like the third child along, and I remember, you know, seeing my three elder... Sorry, I was the fourth child along. Uh, two of them were <laughs> twins, you see. <laughs> anyway, um, I remember seeing them running away from home, you know, um, and being dragged back by the police, you know, them trying to save themselves. So because I was like, as I said, the fourth child along and the oldest ones were creating this chaos, I personally um, sort of sidestepped that and made a life for myself away from the family and with other people and work. You know, I started working from, you know, quite young, 12, 13 years old. Um, yeah, so I... You know, they say the disease of alcoholism is progressive. So unless something's done, it gets worse and worse. And um, as did happen in my family, you know, my my father's behaviour, you know, became worse and my mother's reaction to that behaviour became worse. Um, and, you know, the children were severely affected to the point that this, these days, none of the children speak to each other, which I find, you know, none of my brothers or sister, I couldn't tell you if they're alive, and I find that heartbreaking. Um, I did spend some years, you know, uh, travelling around the country, visiting everybody and, you know, trying to rally us together and go. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately that just didn't happen. Um yeah. Do you want to ask me a question? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I guess the other one is when did you sort of break out from home? When did you escape and how did you do that? As I said, um, you know, my elder brothers and sister, they created a storm by running away and it was all high dramatics, lots of screaming, yelling, physical fighting and stuff. And uh, so I just... Um, I just eased my way through stuff and organised things for myself and before I'd, you know, just I'd started year 11 in high school, um, I got myself a job and came home and said to my parents, I've got a job, I'm moving out and they were like, anyway, um, I saw the storm that had been created around the other siblings and I thought I'm just going to organise this and just move away. They were, uh, yeah tried to make a difficulty out of it and got all the fights and stuff but as I said I just wanted to sidestep it I had the belief that I could just go off and be happy right. <laughs> as I mentioned to you before but uh, um, I read in a book somewhere since then you know that children from these sorts of homes um, always you know think that they're going to go off and be happy somewhere else but unfortunately you know it's called the family disease you know it sort of lives inside of me yeah yeah the old geographicals you take yourself with you yeah yeah uh okay so how did how did you go in the outside world so relationships weren't a problem yeah. that's a, that's a joke um of course yeah absolutely a problem and you know funnily enough i was thinking you know i've attracted so many people to my life that have mental health issues and when i've thought about it later on um you know i'm I could only think that my father couldn't have been a well man apart from being an alcoholic for him to do the things he did. He can't have been mentally well 
and you know my mother's behavior was obvious she wasn't mentally well and uh, just a little while ago I was waiting by a bus stop to get on a bus to come here and a uh, person with a mental health issue um, and I thought yeah they just came right up and stood right beside me you know and I, yeah. I, I have like this attractor um, so yeah relationships have been um, a word I have heard a friend say problematic yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're often problematic. Uh, <laughs> but if you come from if you don't have good relationship skills from your family, then it really just makes it worse because you can't communicate your needs or your you can't tell people who you are because you've spent so long lying about what happens. And so you, you don't tend to open up. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what my needs were. I remember my own daughter saying once, Dad, I, you know, I'd love to go on the restaurant tram. And uh, me looking at her, and she's a young girl, and me thinking, how do you know what you want? <laughs> you know, after I came into al I had to make lists of things um, because, you know, growing up in the home I grew up in, you weren't allowed to want something. Mm. It seems inconceivable in the world we live in now. But, uh, yeah, so I got into a lot of trouble with... Uh, um, girls and relationships and unwanted pregnancies and not being able to make good choices around things and, you know, wanting to get some love because, you know, the natural organic desire is, to, you know, it didn't work in my family. Maybe I can get it somewhere. Uh, didn't work out that easily, unfortunately. Okay. Jason, um, so how did you come to leave home and what was the circumstances and what effect effect did that have on you? It took me a bit to transition out of the home. I remember the first two years I went to the com uh, local community college, one that was right in uh, close to where we lived and then one a little bit further away. And then in my third year I went to university and I found that incredibly challenging. Uh, I didn't have a very good sense of myself and I got into some trouble. I had a lot of anger. Um, by this time, I was binge drinking on the weekends um, and uh, breaking windows. Um, I got arrested once, um, and um, so I was struggling a lot. And um, procrastination was a big um, activity I participated in. <laughs> and um, I knew at this point that um, I also had feelings of taking my own life at one point. So um, that was really hard. And it was at that point that I, I started to look into myself a little bit more. And I realized that my mom was an alcoholic. Um, I remember reading something in the health, um, some health article in, in, um, uh, that was part of the university um, press. And um, so um, it was at this point that things were really unraveling in my life and, and in terms of relationships, I was trying to have relationships with women and it wasn't working very well. I didn't know how to even begin to say that I liked someone or or um, how I would engage with them at all. I was very scared of women, actually. Um, yeah, so um, in, this was at, at a time, yeah, like I started counseling. So I saw a counselor and, and uh, I started to start to look outside of myself for the solutions because I wasn't getting the solutions from my parents. I wasn't getting the solutions from friends because I wasn't, I was just reflecting back what I thought that they wanted to hear, you know, trying to be the goofball sometimes or, you know, um, 
you know, I was getting by on, you know, partying and, and, and uh, interacting with my friends, trying to be a goofball and, and sport, actually. I did a lot of sport at that time as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, did you, had you finished study or, or were you working at this stage? Um, I worked a little bit while I was going to school and, um, and, um, yeah, I, um, sorry, what was the question again? Uh, <laughs> about where you had you finished studying or were you, or were you working at that point? Yeah, no, I, um, I was, I, I, when I finished study, I actually started working and I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself in the, that time it was early, early nineties. I thought I couldn't get a job, you know, there was, you know, that time it was difficult to find a job. And I, and I, and I, I think what I did was I underestimated it, underestimated my own skills. And so I just cut lawns. So that was what I was yeah. trained to do before I worked on a golf course. And that's what I did. Yeah. So that allowed me to sleep in and just do my own, but I was just getting by. And it was funny. I remember working for this guy. He was a lawyer. He'd gone to the same university I did. And what, what are you doing? You know. And I felt humiliated him asking that. But you know, it was, in a way, it wasn't a wasn't an abnormal thing to ask. You know. But I I had depression at that time. It wasn't diagnosed, but I had so much grief and anger around living in a home affected by alcoholism that I didn't know at that time. I just thought, oh well, my dad was such a control freak, you know, and put the blame on him. But I didn't have an idea what was what was actually occurring to me. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so relationships for you then? Uh, um, yeah, I struggled with uh, dating women. I don't think I had a date as such. It was um, – I was very awkward and I think it was inappropriate with women. Um, I don't th- – I, I think I also had problems, uh, issues with um, – you know, um, treating women as equals, you know, um, I, yeah, I had no idea about, um, you know, all my ideas about around women were sort of fairy tale kind of things where, you know, I remember I had a very good friend when I was, you know, around eight or nine and, and I thought it would be all like that, but these are grown women, you know, and, you know, and it's treating them with respect. I didn't, I didn't even have the respect cause I wasn't learning that from my dad and the way he engaged with my mom. So I, so my first one, ones were like very, oh, I don't know, like I met one woman and it was like on a one night stand and I was with her for two months and I kept on thinking it was going to work out and this wasn't a person that was, that was, uh, I don't know, it wasn't a woman that you could have a long-term relationship with. So then I went the other extreme and I thought, okay, I'm going to find someone that's going to, I'm going to have a long-term relationship with. But even when I got into, and that was, ended up being my wife, even when I had my relationship with her, there wasn't any, you know, courtship. There wasn't any, you know, um, you know, it, it was based on, again, on our families. Oh, where did you come from? Oh, well, it's sort of on a victim type of um, perspective. Oh, you went through that. Oh, well, I went through this. And we kind of bonded that way. So, you know, um I actually that that relationship was very stable and I we we had it for 23 years and now I'm separated from my wife but um but it, you know in retrospect um there was a lot of things that didn't form the in a, in a, in a in a sort of organic holistic way that I would like you know would you know I I don't regret that that was the way it is but um 
Um, I have to say that I didn't have the social skills to actually ask for what I want or, or set boundaries or look at the person from the perspective of who is this a person I want to be with for, for the rest of my life, let's say. Right, okay. Um, Victor, um, as you grew up, what was the next stage in your life in sort of a social work sense? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I uh, went off uh, to be artistic, creative, and live a more organic life, looking for something that wasn't so constrained. And, uh, you know, listening, it's interesting. Um, you know, I needed to find out some stuff about myself, you know, stuff that it couldn't explore as a child because opportunities weren't presented. Um, you know, life around the alcoholic is, you know, focused on the alcoholic and the alcoholic getting their needs met. Um, yeah, so I, you know, went off and lived in the bush for a couple of years without electricity and built houses and painted pictures, and uh, which was all really great. And I actually had some success in this arena, um, except for what was going on in my head. So, you know, I'd grown up in this abusive environment and there was this ye yelling and screaming that was continual and the negative thinking in my head was, you know, give me a headache, it's painful, my nervous system is shot and, uh, you know, this is why I wanted to get away from, you know, the rat race is uh, to get out into the bush where it was just a bit sort of peaceful. Um <laughs> If only that were the case, it's not, it doesn't never works out quite like that. Um, but yeah, I really did enjoy that more um, free living, sort of creative. And, you know, I learned life skills, basically, you know, how to look after myself, etc. Yeah. So were they kind to you? You being different? Oh, um, yeah. Did they know you were different? Who? who? Oh, well, who? well yeah, the people you were living with. Did they know of your background? Oh, Could you share oh, look, that? Or? Um, I, I must admit, once I was at a festival and there was a whole lot of men sitting around in a circle and uh, sharing things about their lives. And when I said, you know, my old man was a violent alcoholic and, you know, he beat us and tortured us and never said anything nice to me, you know, they looked at me like... Oh, you know, they, no one wanted to talk to me about it. It was like you got the plague. And it, it was around that time I started realising that um, all of those lovely free will and people out there, you know, actually had somewhere to go home to and actually had inheritances yeah. and <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I inherited a headache. Yeah. <laughs> uh, stinking thinking, I think we call it, in program. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking to Jason and Victor about growing up in an alcoholic family and living with the family disease of alcoholism uh, and the help they've got from Alan family groups. So I guess a good time to sort of mention um, how, what, what, I'll start with you, uh, Jason. What brought you to the point where you needed help, where you realised that your life was a problem to you and you needed to get something to help? Mm. Well, like I said, um, a, a lot of things were unravelling in my early 20s and, 
and then I tried to do a lot of things that, um, you know, that I thought that would help me, you know, like getting, you know, I became very committed to a partner. Um, I started to, started, um, to commit to a job and then I ended up doing very well in that job. I got, I went through management training and then I became a manager and I moved, um, and that allowed me to buy a house. So I was doing all those, uh, materialistic things, but there was still, um, a lot going on in my, in my internal life that, that I wasn't very happy with. I wasn't finding any purpose or meaning in my life. Um, so I did a couple of geographicals <laughs> myself, similar to the way we did at home. So I moved from one, uh, one city, Vancouver to Edmonton and Alberta and which is the next province in from the West in Canada. And then I moved to Northern Alberta, which was right up near the 60th parallel, of the Arctic circle. And so, and that job was very good. So I had a lot of things. I was able to buy properties, have a car, a couple cars and, you know, um, have that material wealth and still think, but you know, things were starting to get really bad still around my relationship. And I wasn't showing my commitment that I needed to for my, for a lo- someone I wanted my wife, you know, and, um, so then we did another geographical because her dad died and um, uh, we moved to Australia. And this is where I started to, to think I needed help. And my, my wife has suggested another program called Codependence Anonymous. Okay. So in 2011, I started that in about July 2011, I believe. And someone said, oh, they said, oh, I, I've been noticing your shares. You're talking about your mom has alcoholism. So in about 2012, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting in 2013. I, a year later yeah. is when I, I actually stayed in the rooms and I became a very committed uh, member of Al-Anon. And this is when I started to get answers. Um, so what was it like going to your first Al-Anon meeting that you took seriously? Sort of what was, what's it like coming in with that confusion and getting some understanding of the problem? I think in the in the beginning it's very scary. It's I had a lot of fear and anxiety because it was somewhere I felt very comfortable. I could say my truth and I could say it from my heart, and I wasn't used to that. So it gave me a voice rather than having it ha- happen all in my head. And through that process, I was starting to sort of like you know it's like decompress slow down, you know, the anxiety, I didn't realize it was way up, you know, it was very high anxiety levels that I didn't even know existed. And listening is a big part of Al-Anon, like sharing is important, but listening allows me to actually, listening is very different than being in your head because it gives you the compassion for others. And then to begin to see that they're having issues that are very similar, if not the same as I was having. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Uh, Victor, how, what pushed you into Al-Anon? I guess, uh, Bill, yeah, it was a struggle of, um, you know, having a reasonable life and I could see that certain things were happening for my friends and other people that weren't happening for me. And, uh, you know, I was emotionally struggling. I'd be doing okay. It, would be, it was like a big roller coaster, you know. I was doing okay. I'd be doing okay, doing okay. Then I'd plummet, you know, and uh, I'd be come home and it would just be me. 
and uh, this is what the family disease did to me you know it uh, you know left me feeling you know not worthy um, it sounds simple putting it simplistically but feeling terrible about myself and why would anyone want to be around me you know when you know my uh, you know primary people in my life didn't want to be around me and uh, yeah so um, I got was struggling struggling and you know did things I mentioned you know I was uh, went for a holiday to Indonesia and I'd climbed a mountain and uh, you know um, doing all these things outside of myself to try and get this monkey off my back and uh, we we're walking down off this volcano and I was just feeling elated you know and uh, singing and humming to myself and the Indonesian guide in front of me turned around and he said what are you saying I said nothing I'm just making noise you know and he said oh that sounds like a prayer in our language and this is the prayer he said it's God I've had a hard life come and help make it better and uh, I thought to myself or said you know well that's the truth and uh, I got back from that holiday and I was just feeling wretched Uh, and I think it's from the lack of being able to connect and uh, you know build a family and a life and a place in the world and uh, this friend had lent me this book and in the book this man had said um, you know his father was an alcoholic and it was good to have a support group for that so you know, I tried um, adult children of alcoholics and went to a couple of these meetings and came away really depressed. Go on, there's no hope. And then I eventually found, phoned up Al-Anon and, you know, a little old lady said, you know, go along over here and, uh, you know, that'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. Right. And what mm. was that like? Well, you know... I guess I was, you know, my anxiety, I was vibrating so much in my body like this, you know, that uh, it was hard to be present. But I know I felt like crying. There was people there that knew what they were talking about. People talked about, you know, being oversensitive to things, um, to being feeling homicidal and suicidal, all of this sort of stuff. Uh, I could sat there and I... Um, identified with what people were saying i could go this this is these people are talking my language this is the stuff that i feel and uh, you know what jason was saying before this is hope you know is hearing other people's experience so all of a sudden i could identify with these people i didn't want to spend any time with them yeah <laughs> but because they're a bit crazy <laughs> no 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 just that you know that the pain of all that you know i just i couldn't have it all rushing in and they said to me at the end of the meeting would you like to say anything i said i might cry and they all said oh that's okay (laughs) and i thought no no it's not okay not okay with me yeah um so did you feel like you obviously felt comfortable did you feel like you'd come home is that a some people say that um i could understand that look i um I realised it was something significant. And I think the bottom line for me with going to meetings is that I come away and my soul and my spirit and my mind have all calmed down, you know. I'm often um, head up from the week, you know, and all the activity and the traffic and people interactions and, you know, coming along to a meeting just helps me to settle and sink into my body. And these are people... 
you know, that I don't have to explain about why I'm there. People understand, you know, being around an alcoholic can drive you crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's life like now for you that you, know, that you couldn't do before? What do you feel Alan has helped you with? Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's a great question because, uh, you know, it helped me put things into perspective, what's real and what's not. So a lot of uh, a lot of my thinking was not real. So I would, you know, there was a lot of fear from all those years. As my training as a child was, you know, all fear-based. Um, so I can rationalise, sort of compartmentalise things. Um, you know, before Al-Anon, I was a time traveller. My mind was always in the past or it was in the future. Yep. Uh, so, you know... Alanon has very much taught me to be in the present. What I'm doing right now is what my life consists of. At the moment, we're talking on the radio, but other times I'm at work or I'm interacting, and it helped me to become present. Yeah, I I think so. I think that's the big thing: is not being, not having that activity in your brain, in your mind, all the time about what's happening outside. And what you need to do to make it better or make it less worse, um, you can relax and just enjoy the present. Yeah. Um, so, Jason, coming into Alaron, how's that helped you be yourself? A lot of it for me is is listening and listening to other people's stories and listening to the to the wisdom in everybody's story. And I also did, um, I also had a sponsor and we did the steps and that was a very powerful thing for me because it's not like even having a best friend, you know, it's like having someone who's a trusted, sort of like a, let's say a trusted advisor and you share all these things that you share in a way, you know, I might've told a lot of things to my wife before, but share in a way with a person you hardly know really. Um, the deepest, you know, most imp- intimate things in, in in my life, and and they listen, and then they they encouraged. He encouraged me. He highly supported me, and out of that, really, for me, was that I trusted a process. So before, you know, if I had teachers or I had coaches, I didn't really trust them. You know, I didn't have that level of trust, and even I've done some therapy since then, and. I didn't really trust my therapist. So how could I even, yeah. you know, progress with that? So now my life has taken on a, you know, um, a whole new perspective around that is trusting the process in a trust, in, a, in trustworthy environments with trustworthy people. So, you know, um, I, I, ha- I have a faith, actually. It's a faith in myself that things will turn out. Like even today with the program, I was yeah. a little nervous. <laughs> But I said to myself, no, it'll be fine, you know. And and listening to Victor too, you know, it just puts me back in the rooms again because then I, I get that identification, you know. Yeah. And I don't – it leaves me with myself rather than away from myself. And so when I'm able to, you know, get in touch with myself that well, then nothing – you know, I, I, I can overcome, you know, like they say, serenity. Serenity is not something you achieve. Serenity means that – you have grace under pressure in a sense. 
So I have that sort of serenity. I can't say all the time, yeah. but I have, I have something I, I can rely on now within myself because I trust others who are trustworthy and I can trust the process that they're, they're trying to maybe teach me. So I'm become teachable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They can help you help yourself. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Victor, anything you'd like to add before we close? Um, <clears throat> you know, if I could have gotten well, um, by reading books and understanding this stuff by myself and not had to deal with other humans, I certainly would have done that. It was a hard thing for me to surrender and go, you know, I need help with this. And, uh, you know, they say the journey from the head to the heart, what was it? It's the longest, <laughs> yeah. It's the longest journey, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to know something intellectually but to actually know it have that knowing in your heart you know is uh it's hard and sitting in the rooms with people actually makes things easier to do and uh you know so that knowing goes from just a head knowing into my heart and becomes a habit yes a habit of health rather than a habit you know what do they say as i get older i want to get better not bitter yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we might leave it there. Um, if you're suffering because of someone else's drinking, you can call Alan and Family Groups and find out how they can help you. Their helpline is 1300 252 666, or you can go online at Um I'd like to thank Jason and Victor for coming in today and sharing their Alan and Family Group recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Jason. Bill. Thanks, Bill. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by a member of Gamblers Anonymous. Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to the Living Free program today. (coughs) 